Turn with me in your Bible to Psalm 84, the 84th Psalm. We're, uh, we're going through this summer series on the book of Psalms, where we're looking at uh, different Psalms, different aspects of the Psalms, because this book of Psalms was a, it was the original songbook. It was the hymn book that they used back in the old days. And we learn here just how people learn to express themselves to God in worship, which is what worship is. It's expressing ourselves to God. I hope you did that just a little bit ago. I hope that you weren't just watching the show. I hope that you were worshiping God, that everyone else singing pulled you in. And it was a corporate thing of, of us worshiping together. When we're looking at the Psalms, we're looking at how did people back then, usually David, but there were other writers of the Psalms, express their worship to God. So in Psalm 84, I want us to look at verses 1, 2, 3, and 4. The first four uh, verses of Psalm 84, and we're going to see that he is expressing how much he loves the house of God when the people of God come together and meet with him, just how valuable that is. So let's read these first four verses, and then, uh, uh, and it kind of summarizes the rest of the Psalm 84, and then I want, I'll get some comments on it. Okay, verse 1. How lovely is your dwelling place, Lord Almighty. My soul yearns, even faints, for the courts of the Lord. My heart and my flesh cry out for the living God. Even the sparrow has found a home, and the swallows a nest for herself, where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Lord Almighty, my King and my God, blessed are those who dwell in your house. They are ever praising you. They are ever praising you. I love that. Why is it the people that dwell in the Lord's house, and when he means dwell, he doesn't mean they live there. It means they keep going back to it. This is the safe place. This is, their, this is the, the connection place. They're ever praising you. Why are they the ones praising? Because they're the ones that get reminded. I'm just like you. My mind gets filled with whatever I'm doing in this life. And if you're like me, I've got a lot of things going on. I've got, I've got this cooking over here and this cooking over there, and I've got to go do this and I've got to go do that. And I'm constantly going to all these things I have to take care of. And the next thing you know, my mind is consumed with the cares of the world, and I'm forgetting about God. And you can't thrive in this world forgetting about God. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's just the beginning. So notice, notice he said there in verse 3, he uses a word picture. You know, Jesus loved to use word pictures. The kingdom of heaven is like. And he would give us a simple little picture to explain a deep spiritual mystery that you could not explain. And we find that idea of word pictures used again and again and again in the Bible, even back in the Old Testament um, here in Psalm 84. He says, even the sparrow has found a home and the swallow a nest for herself where she may have her young, a place near your altar. Now, obviously, it's, he's not talking about birds. 
He's using a word picture to describe us and our relationship. Even the swallows and even the sparrows want to build a home near the altar. That should be a reflection of us. So we're going to look at that word picture. And Jesus talks about sparrows elsewhere in the New Testament, but this is the only place I'm aware of where he talks about swallows. So I want to talk about swallows this morning and use the swallow since the psalm writer brought that illustration out. We're going to kind of use that as we reflect on this. So five things to know about swallows, the swallow's nest. Here's number one. Swallows are risk takers. They love to take risks. Um, I, I love taking care of my lawn. I love mowing. I've, I've got a garden tractor, 20 horse that I use to mow my grass. And every now and then something unusual will catch my eye and I'll just stop the thing and watch it. A couple of years ago I saw this with, uh, you know when you're, when you're mowing your lawn, if you've ever noticed this, bugs nest in the grass. And when you're mowing, bugs come up out of the grass and swallows eat bugs. And they just love to come swooping down all around my mower when I'm cutting through the grass and I'm churning that all up and the bugs are flying everywhere. They love to just swoop down with their mouth open and catch these bugs. They get a nice meal just following me around. A couple of years ago I noticed as I was out back, I noticed my cat was on his way out in the yard. He was watching those cats come down within reach. So he thought this would be a nice meal. So the cat crouched down. You know how cats do. They're sneaky. Crouched down. He started crawling up out there in the grass. Finally, he got to a place where he just laid flat. Pretty soon, one of those swallows came down right over that cat. And that cat pounced up, jumped three feet in the air to catch a bird. And that bird just spread his wings out and stopped right in mid-flight. Took off that way, off in the other direction. <laughs> and then another one came down. The cat did the same thing. And then I just sat there and laughed out loud because the swallows from all over the place came after that cat. They were just zipping and zooming and dodging. It was like a dogfight in World War II, just all over the place. And that cat was jumping and trying to catch one. They'd almost bounce off his head. And the cat never caught a single swallow. And if a, if a swallow laughs, I'm sure they were having a great time. That is so funny that a swallow would be so courageous as to take risks. And I think that's a model example for us that we need to be the kind of people that aren't afraid to take risks because we will never accomplish anything. We will never succeed at anything if we don't take risks. Yeah. Now, risks are a scary thing, but we have to take them. We're never going to make progress if we don't take some risks. You know how Mr. Sears got started? He bought a box of pocket watches. And then he sent out telegrams telling people he had these watches for sale at this certain amount of money. And so many telegraph orders came back to him ordering his pocket watches, he had to go out and buy another box. And then he discovered something. 
this telegraph thing might be a real successful idea because I've just now expanded my market from my own neighborhood to all over the country, whoever I send a telegraph to. And so he began selling these telegraphs all over the place and buying box after box of this item and that item till the next thing you know, he had to put it all together in a catalog and sent out the Sears catalog to farmers and communities all over the country. And you know the rest of the story is history, how he became very successful as a merchant in the United States with his advertising and buying in bulk and selling one at a time. But what if nobody wanted one of his pocket watches? He would have got stuck with a whole box of pocket watches. What's one guy do with a whole box of pocket watches? He had to take a risk to be successful. You have to take risks in life. If you weren't willing to take a risk, you'd never get married. <laughs> because marriage is a risk. I mean, you are committing your life to somebody else in front of your friends and family. You're standing at that altar before God, and you're promising you're going to be faithful till death do us part, and all the other person has to do is change their mind. It's risky. But you're never going to get married if you don't take a risk. You're never going to get that first job that make your first dollar if you don't take a risk. You're never going to buy a house if you don't take a risk. You're never going to buy a car if you don't take a risk. Everything in life requires a risk. And if your concern in life is security and safety and you just pull in because you don't want to fail, you don't want to be a loser, you don't want this to, to disintegrate and fall apart in front of you, you're never going to be successful. So like the swallow, we have to take some risks. Ecclesiastes 11 verses 4 through 6 says it like this. Whoever watches the wind will not plant. Whoever looks at the clouds will not reap. As you do not know the path of the wind or how the body is formed in a mother's womb, so you cannot understand the work of God, the maker of all things. Sow your seed in the morning, and at evening let your hands not be idle, for you do not know which will succeed, whether this or that or whether both will do equally well. One farmer goes out and plants his seed in the morning. Another farmer goes out and plants his seed in the evening, which is right. The only way to know is do it and see if it makes a difference because we don't know which is going to be successful. We don't know if we're going to succeed or we'll fail, but we do know one thing, we won't succeed if we don't try. So some of us have been wounded, deeply wounded, deeply hurt, and we pulled within because we don't want to go through that pain again, and we're stuck right where we are. We can't move on because of the pain of the past, and God is telling us, be like the swallow, take a risk. He'll give you the ability to spread out your wings and change directions in a moment's notice. He'll give you that wisdom. We just have to trust him. Stop and think about it. P 
people who live in a lifestyle of sin and say, ah, there is no God, they are taking a risk that there is no God. What if there is? What if there is a God who's going to hold judgment day? What if there is a God who's going to hold us accountable? What if? If you want to be safe, we need to take the safe route and say, I'm going to trust in God even if there is none. I'm going to trust him. There's a, a song that was written several years ago that hit the popular Christian charts called Do It Anyway. Uh, and I want to read the lyrics to us because I think it's appropriate for this topic of taking a risk. Martina McBride wrote, You can spend your whole life building something from nothing. One storm can come and blow it all away. Build it anyway. You can chase a dream that seems so out of reach, and you know it might, ever, might not ever come your way. Dream it anyway. God is great, and sometimes life ain't good. And when I pray, it doesn't always turn out like I think it should, but I do it anyway. The world's gone crazy, and it's hard to believe that tomorrow will be better than today. Believe it anyway. You can love someone with all your heart for all the right reasons, and in a moment they can choose to walk away. Love them anyway. You can pour your soul out singing a song you believe in that tomorrow they'll forget you ever sang, but sing it anyway. Take some risks in life because you only have one chance, don't we? Make your life count. Where am I at? All right, let's go to uh, point number two. The second thing I want us to see about swallows Swallows are restless, restless, always on the move. They don't like to sit. They want to move. They always got something going on. Some of us are kind of like that, always on the move, have a hard time relaxing. When we go to bed at night and finally we say, ah, I'm glad that day's over, we lay there on our pillow, close our eyes, and our minds are busy, 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 busy. Just wish I could shut it off for a while. Can't get to sleep because my mind's going this way and that way and the other way. Restless. Swallows are restless. I did some research on swallows. Found some information online, so it's got to be true. <laughs> a swallow will fly for months without landing. Months and never land. They must sleep while they're flying. Amazing. They eat on the wing. They just swoop, eat bugs on the fly. They drink by skimming over a lake or the ocean and drop their lower beak and skim along the top at 20 miles an hour. They don't have to land. They don't have to rest. They just keep going, going, going. I think there's a couple examples of restless people in the Bible. One of them is a lady by the name of Martha. Remember her? She was always trying to get things around, always busy, busy, busy. 
There's a time she had a meal at her house and the Lord and the disciples were there and she was out in the kitchen fixing the meal. And she was busy, busy, busy trying to get things around. And, and you ladies that prepare meals for lots of people, you know, Jesus had 12 disciples where he went, hungry guys. And so she's trying to get all this food all ready, and it all, gets, all comes together at the same time. And she's out in the kitchen driving herself crazy trying to get all this taken care of. And her sister's sitting in the living room at the feet of Jesus listening to him teach. And she's just frazzled, and she comes running in, and she says, Lord, Lord, don't you, don't you care that I'm out there driving myself crazy, and she's sitting in here just listening to what you're saying? And Jesus said, Martha, 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 you're anxious about many things. Your sister has chosen the right thing, and it will not be taken away from her. He wasn't scolding Martha for being so busy. He was scolding Martha for trying to get Mary to leave and come out and pick up her gift set, pick up her ministry, do what she's want. She wants Martha to be like her. I think there's a lot of us in this room that kind of have that problem. We want everybody else to be just like us. We think everybody ought to vote just the way we vote. Everybody ought to think the way we think. Judas was another example. When Jesus was at that Pharisee's house at that banquet, and she came in the door, and everybody knew she was a, wo a woman with a dark past. She had a lot of sin in her life. She came up to Jesus, and she must have had quite a bit of money because she had this very expensive bottle of perfume, and she broke that bottle and poured it on his feet, anointing him. And Judas, one of the 12, he was the treasurer. He was the one in, they put in charge of the money. And remember, Jesus is the one who put him in charge of the money. He's the treasurer of the group. He spoke up and he said, Lord, why all this waste? Why this waste? I mean, this, we could have sold that perfume and made a lot of money and we could have fed the hungry or we could have maybe built a shelter for someone or we could have taken care of somebody really in need. And she just poured it on your feet. What Judas was saying is, I could have made better use of that gift than she was. Why can't she be like me? Why can't she donate her gift, what belongs to her, and give it to me and let me decide where it goes? That's what Judas was saying. It was her bottle of perfume. It was her ointment. She can do anything with her possessions she wants to, can't she? It's hers. But Judas was criticizing her because she wasn't doing what he would have done with it. Judas was always busy, busy, busy. He was restless. He couldn't just let things work out. He wanted to be in control. Now, how does this apply to us in the church? Bill Hybels, a couple years ago, coined a term that's been used a lot since then. It's the term holy discontent. Holy discontent can be described like this. It's someone who says, I love my church. I don't want to miss coming to my church. I just love my church. And I love my pastor. And I love the people, and I love the worship, 
I just think God's doing an amazing thing at New Hope Christian Center. I just love my church. But when I read the Bible, I don't see a parallel. I don't see things happening in my church that happened in the Bible. I don't see lost people coming to Christ like I read it in the Bible. I love my church. I love everything about it, but there's just, I'm not content with where we are. There just has to be more. If we are a spirit-filled church, where is the power? When you come to that point of discontent and you are not content with the way things are, that's when you step up and do something to change it. If you're content with the way things are, you don't want to rock the boat. You're very happy. But holy discontent is when somebody says, I love my church, but there's got to be more. What can there be more? How can I help change it? And when you ask the question, how can I help change it? Now we're beginning to step out of our comfort, step out of our content, and God can begin to redirect us. That's why we need to come together as the family of God. This is why he's using this illustration of the sparrows and the swallows. They want to be close to the altar. They build their nest close to the altar. That's why we need to be in fellowship with one another. Somebody say amen. amen. Here's number three. Swallows are right on schedule. They don't show up late. Uh, the, I'm not sure about barn swallows that we have around here, but the swallows, they're, they're, there's a breed of swallows that come back to San Juan Capistrano. We probably heard about this a lot. March 19th is the date. You can mark your calendar. You can make sure your calendar's on the right day by when those swallows return to the, the sand cliffs at San Juan Capistrano. They not only arrive on the same day every year, century after century, but they return to the same nest. Even if you destroy the nest, they'll come back to the same spot and rebuild it. It's amazing that instinctive ability, they come back right on schedule. We humans don't have instincts, they tell us. We develop habits. And sometimes it's our, the parents that develop habits for us, or our social group develop habits for us, or we ourselves develop habits. I think I remember uh, telling you the story uh, a while back, maybe it was two years ago, about uh, these barn swallows that come back and build a nest on an electrical box under my deck in the back of my house. And they, uh, they, they would get up in there and make this nest. They came back the next year and just made it a little higher, and they just keep making it higher. And I'd finally decided to tear it down, and they came right back to the same spot. And someone in the church suggested I get a stuffed animal and put it up there. They wouldn't come back. So I told Anita to get me a teddy bear at Walmart. Next time she went, she came back with a chihuahua. <laughs> Meanest looking thing. I put that stuffed chihuahua up there, tied it up with a ribbon. And you know, the birds didn't come back. 
So I thought, I finally found the secret, that it's the Chihuahua treatment. <laughs> so I kept that Chihuahua till the next spring, which was this spring. I put the Chihuahua back up there again. Before they arrived, I figured now I got it solved. I looked at it a couple days later, and wouldn't you know, those swallows were building a nest on top of the Chihuahua's head. <laughs> I mean, going right up. So I thought, I've got to be smarter than the swallow. What am I going to do? So I got a piece of scrap wood, and I ran a couple three-inch screws up through it and set them up there so the bird would have to land on the screws. You know, and been back. But I'm wondering what they're going to do next year. Because you never know. There's this instinct within them that brings them back to the same spot. In Romans uh, 12, verse 2, it says, do not conform. You know what conform means? It means to press, press into a, a, a preset shape. Do not conform to the pattern of this world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Then you'll be able to test and approve what God's will is, his good, pleasing, and perfect will. So he uses uh, uh, two words here, conform and transform. I'm not supposed to conform. I'm not supposed to go with the flow. I'm not supposed to be doing what everybody else does because that's the world's way. If the world's getting itself destroyed, if I do it the world's way, I'll get myself destroyed. The wages of sin is death. So I need to be transformed. You know what a transformer is. You know, it converts from this to that. I need to be transformed. My mind needs to be changed by the, by the renewing of my mind. I need to re-educate myself. I, re, I need to retool. I need to change the way my mind processes the decisions I make. And how do I do that? I need to get back to God's word. This is the manual. This is the resource book I go back to to find out how I should live my life, how I should make decisions, how I should deal with people like that, how I should deal with rejection, how do I deal with death in my life? I need to come back to the resurrection book. It gives me hope. This is the manual we need to come back to. Somebody say amen. Swallows come back right on schedule. I'm going to give my age away here. I remember as a little boy, a steam engine would come down the New York Central tracks. I know they were introducing diesels, but there was a steam engine, regular, still, still a working engine. And that, that engine had an engineer that would blow the whistle as he came through town. And it was a signature whistle, certain, certain kind of blow. He would blow that when he came through town. And you could always tell that it was that train. You could set your watch by it. Actually, farmers did. They set their, they set their clocks with uh, the old wind-up clocks. They used to set their clocks with the whistle when the train went past because trains used to run on a schedule like the airlines. I mean, like, you knew when it was going to take off and you knew when it was going to arrive. There might be a little bit of variation, but it was pretty, pretty accurate. 
right on time. Maybe we should learn some lessons about being on schedule, being disciplined with our time, being right on time. Maybe we could develop a habit of being faithful in God's house, whether it rained or it didn't, whether I felt good or whether I didn't. Don't bring me your flu. But I think we need to develop some faithfulness. In, in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 and 25, he says, and let us consider how we may spur one another on. You know what spur is? You know what a spur that a cowboy would put on his boots? Remember the purpose of the spur? If I want to move, I kick that horse in a tender spot, and the horse will take off. It'll go where I want. It's like an accelerator button. Spur one another on. We're supposed to spur one another on toward love and good deeds. Not giving up meeting together as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day approaching. Now the day has a capital D there. It's talking about the day of the Lord's return. As you see the day of the Lord's return, that makes it all the more important that we spur one another on. Encourage, provoke, push, motivate. We need to push one another on, spur one another on. I need motivation. You need motivation. Listening to some of the great Bible teachers on TV isn't motivating us. Being in God's house with real people who encourage me and pray for me when I'm down and, and help me along in the tough times, that's motivation. The TV preacher doesn't know if I tuned in this week or not. But the people in God's family do. Amen. They know if I showed up or not. And I need to motivate one another. So swallows are right on schedule. Uh, boy, I got five minutes and two points to go. Here's number four. Swallows raise their young by example. They build a nest near the altar for their young. It's amazing where these swallows build their nests, you know? They want to get... When you, have to, you have to think. Now, this is Bible, Bible times. In our day, we close the doors. We want to keep the air conditioning in here. We don't want all that humidity getting in the house. We close the doors. But back in Jesus' day, they opened the doors. They opened the doors in the morning. They were open all day long. People came and went back and forth, in and out. I can see so easily how a swallow would want to come in and build a nest near the altar. Now, we don't let swallows in our building, but they can build a nest real close to the altar, you know. Have you noticed that swallow nest right outside the front doors? Things keep pooping right in front of you as you walk in the door. <laughs> we toyed with the idea of just tearing the nest down before they laid the eggs, but we didn't, weren't sure how close the eggs were, so we decided we would just let it go. But now we're dealing with the reality. They're all going to come back to the same place. <laughs> yeah, bring your chihuahua. Verse 3 says, Where she may lay her young. Where do we lay our young? Do we get them close to the altar? 
Do we want to build our nest close to the altar? Or, 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 or do we just want to let our kids make up their own mind? I've heard, I've heard people say, you know, I don't really want to teach my children a certain way. I want them to make their own mind up. I want them to decide whether there's a God or not on their own and decide where they want to go to church. So I'm not going to force that on them. I'm going to let them decide that on their own. You know, that, that's a pretty good theory. Why don't you try that out on your garden? Just, just let your garden decide on its own what it's going to grow. See what you got. Same thing transfers over to your family. If you let your kids just decide on their own what they're going to do. No, moms and dads set a pattern for their children to walk in. They role model it. Swallows raise their young by example. Two, uh, two scriptures from the Proverbs I want to share with us that, that speak to this raising your own by example. First is Proverbs 22, 6. It says, train up a child in the way he should go, and when he's old, he'll not depart from it. That's not a promise. That's a principle. That's a principle. If you train up a child, that word train, we usually think of training as something an athlete does, practice over and over and over again. But that word train actually in the Hebrew is a horticultural term that relates to what a vineyard keeper will do with the vine. I don't want my vine to just go any which way. I want it to go up the pole and, and down whatever you call that thing is up over the top, the, the arbor, whatever. So you take that vine when it's soft and limp and you direct it the way you want and you tie it up. And you do that when it's very young. Because if you wait till the thing grows up, it'll break on you when you try to redirect it. So while it's young and pliable, you direct that vine the way you want and you tie it up. And then he applies that word to raising children. Train up a child in the way he should go. And the principle is even when he's old and not depart from it. So it's like we're laying a rail for our children to run their lives on. We set the model and they keep following down. They, they, they'll keep following that. Proverbs 29.15 then says a rod. Oh no, we hate this. People want to throw the Bible out when they read about discipline. A rod and a reprimand impart wisdom, but a child left undisciplined disgraces its mother. Take the rod out of that a minute because we don't want to hurt our kids, hit our kids with a rod. Of course we don't want to do that. But if you take that out and focus on the second part, now you get a clearer picture. A child left undisciplined disgraces its mother. That ought to be offensive to every dad in here. That my child, if I let my child, uh, my child's growing up. I got to let him learn the hard way. He's got to learn on his own. I let my child learn on its own. It's going to end up disgracing my wife, the child's mother. When my wife is disgraced, I'm dishonored. That's a problem. Us guys have got to grab a hold of our sons and our daughters and we've got to give them direction. And sometimes it may take a rod. Physical discipline. Oh, it's quiet in here. Number five, I got to move on before somebody throws a tomato at me. Number five, 
And, and the, key, the key is here, folks, let me tell you, the key is when they're little, when they're little, you can smack them on the padded diaper and shock them into obedience. You wait till you have to get the rod out, you got your hands full. Do it young. Teach them no means no. Teach them what the rules are when they're little. Because it gets harder as they get older. Amen. All right, I got to go. Number five, swallows make their own retreat. That swallow nest, if you take a look on your way out your door, if you look up in the peak there, right up, clear up at the top, you'll see that swallow nest. If you stand there long enough, the birds will fly away. But they just love to huddle in there in a cluster in that nest. High up with a small opening, just enough to get in there to keep the predators and the storms out. Who made that nest for them? Made it for themselves. They made a nest. I think this illustration portrays over to us as Christians that we need to be making our own retreat, making our own safe place, our own safe haven, our own refuge. Jesus called it a prayer closet. Go into your prayer closet. When you're going to pray, don't go out where there's lots of people and they can all hear how fancy your prayers are. Don't do that. Go into your prayer closet. It's a refuge. It's a quiet place, a hiding place to get alone with God. We have to make that. If we don't make it, it's not going to happen. Psalm 91.4, we'll wrap it up with this, says, He will cover you with His feathers and under his wings you will find refuge. His faithfulness will be your shield and rampart. Notice, God's not a bird. He doesn't have feathers and he doesn't have wings. This is a word picture of God's relationship with us, that he spreads out his wings and we crawl under and he covers us with those wings. I remember reading a story years ago uh, out in the, the west in the old days, there was a prairie fire and a farmer went out to, to, to survey the land after the prairie fire had swept through and he saw a prairie chicken there on the ground with its wings spread out burned to death in the fire and the farmer went up and he kicked the prairie chicken and underneath were live chicks they survived the fire because mother had sacrificed her life to protect them under his wings is a safe place to be that's our refuge that's our shield and our rampart he's our protector in the time of storm Let's stand together. I hope Psalm 84 encourages you. Just that one verse about swallows is like enlightening. It lets us see something amazing about God. He's our safe place. We need to draw close to Him. Amen? Amen. If you don't know that, learn that. Find a quiet place. Maybe it's your bathroom. Maybe it's a room where nobody else goes when, now that you got the kids out of the house. Maybe it's a porch swing. 
I don't know where it might be. Maybe you got a woods near your house and you can go out there and that's a quiet, but we need to find a quiet place where we shut out all this other noise, all these concerns, shut everything else out and just focus on him because he will rebuild us. He will renew us. That's the safe place we need to keep coming back to. Amen. Amen. Let me pray with you. Heavenly Father, I pray right now for all of us, fathers, we've been reminded that you are our safe haven. We need to find a way to press in. We need to raise our kids close to the altar. We need to, to, to almost feel like this is our second home because this is, this is where we come to kick back and relax, not to show off our spiritual maturity, but we come here just to find refreshment in you. So, Father, renew us, refresh us. And, Father, I'm, uh, I'm aware with a message like this, there's probably somebody here who really does need a refuge. They're going through some storms, some tough things right now. And this whole story is speaking life to them. It's, it's breathing something new. And I pray that you will refresh and renew, God, and use us to be the people you want us to be. Help us to find that peace and refreshment in you. We pray in Jesus' name. And all God's people said... Amen. We've got some prayer partners that will be up here to the front that will pray with you and agree with you on something, any request you have. Let's, uh, let's keep serving God. Go with God. He loves you.